So we're going to pick up right where we left off last week and walk through these last few verses of chapter 1 in Philippians. Um, So you can go ahead and turn there if you're not already there. Last week we looked at one of the most famous statements in Paul's writings uh, when he said in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We talked about this last week, but he did not know what God's plan was for him. There seemed to be a confidence that he would be released. He mentioned that in verse 25, and we now know that he was released and he did visit Philippi again. But I don't believe that he knew this at the time that he wrote this letter. And we'll see, I think, more evidence for that in the verses we're going to look at today. What he wanted the Philippian church to know was that it didn't matter. It didn't matter if he came to them again or not. Over the course of these verses that we'll look at today, and really through the rest of the letter, Paul is going to give them instructions on how to live a countercultural lifestyle. By the way, I think it has been so interesting to study this portion of Scripture while also walking through the book of Daniel uh, that we've been looking at in the W4 the last six weeks or so. And what we'll look at today and the instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to us on living counterculturally can be seen in the lives of Daniel uh, and his three friends. And I'm gonna, I'll make reference to some of that along the way. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 if you're not already there, and let's read these verses together. I want to back up a little bit and put some of this together with what we read last week. And so I want to start um, with that famous line in verse 21. So read this out, or read this with me. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's start today with where Paul starts, with the word only. And this is kind of the first point that I want to look at briefly this morning. One essential issue. This is the bottom line. Paul is going to address one essential issue in church life. This is the bottom line and the main point that he wants to convey to the readers of this letter, which, by the way, includes all of us. The word only is a key word, and we shouldn't just gloss over it. It comes from the Greek word monos, which means one, and it carries with it this idea of being alone without a companion. In other words, it's a singular point that stands alone. Paul's going to tell his readers what that one essential issue is, and then he's going to break kind of down what that means for us. So what is that one essential issue in church life? 
That's our second point this morning. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So conduct yourselves in a worthy manner. The ESV uses the phrase, let your manner of life. Other translations use the phrase, conduct yourselves. So we are to conduct ourselves in a worthy manner. And I think that either translation is adequate, but it, it, it does help us to understand what this term means. Conduct or to conduct ourselves is a word related to citizenship. Because Philippi was a Roman colony, this word becomes really interesting and noteworthy. When we first started this series, we looked at kind of the history of the church and how it came into existence, and I touched a little bit on the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony, but it was given all the rights and privileges, just like as if those people in Philippi lived in Rome. So they, they took great pride in their citizenship as Roman citizens. And so it's an interesting link that Paul uses here. It would have caught their attention right away. The Romans took great pride in their citizenship and they took very seriously its accompanying responsibilities. The city-state was viewed as a partnership with other people to obtain the highest good for all society. Paul used this word intentionally because the citizens of Philippi, as I've already mentioned, were proud to be citizens of Rome. So conduct yourselves means to conduct oneself according to the laws and the customs of the state. It often referred to job duties that a person is responsible for as a member of a community or a body of people. From this word, we get such English words as politic or political. So literally translated, Paul is saying, behave as citizens or perform your duties as good citizens. John MacArthur said this about this phrase. He said, when Paul says to the church, conduct yourselves, he's saying to the church, live as citizens of heaven. So he's not writing them to tell them to live as good citizens of Rome. Now, I think he would agree and we would agree that we are to live as good citizens in the society in which we live. But ultimately, our allegiance is not to the United States of America. Their allegiance was not to Rome. Their allegiance was to Christ and to his kingdom. And so we are, just as Paul is saying to them, we are citizens of heaven. We see this very clearly just a couple of chapters over in the same letter. Chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. He lays it out very, very clearly. So that's what he has in mind here. And he's saying, live according to the values and customs and culture of the heavenly kingdom. Live for the good of others, not for yourself. And may all your talents, abilities, endeavors, successes be directed at the community rather than yourself. As believers, we are called to live in partnership with others. To live as a member of a spiritual kingdom, namely the church. To live as citizens governed by the law of God, by righteousness, faith, love, service, and worship. And the Bible is very clear that through the gospel... Paul says this in Colossians, we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. We have been made citizens of a new community, a spiritual fellowship. It's the heavenly church, and that's Paul's point here. We are to live as citizens, not of Rome, but of the heavenly kingdom. 
As citizens of heaven, we are to live for the good of others, not for ourselves. We are to live consistent with the values, the goals, and the expressions of heaven. Now, it's important to understand that this phrase here is an imperative. In other words, it's a command. And it's also in the present tense, meaning we are to continually, habitually follow this command. The present imperative is often a call to a long-term commitment and calls for the attitude or action to be one's continual way of life. It's to be our lifestyle. These actions are not suggestions, but rather commands to make each attitude and action our habitual practice. This is the first of about 12 um, present imperatives that we see in the letter to the Philippians. And as we continue to walk through this in the months to come, I'll try to, to highlight those. But what I learned this week in my study was that there are some 880 present imperatives in the whole of the New Testament. So if you are ever one to wonder, what's God's will for my life? Read the scriptures. He makes it pretty clear. You know, we often, many times you may have asked this in your, in your own life. What's God's will for my life? And sometimes I think when we ask that question, we've failed to do our homework. We've failed to spend time in the word where he's given us his will for our lives. It's pretty clear. And this is one of those things. This is an imperative. It's a command that God is telling us. This is how we are to live our lives. Believers are to have integrity and we are to live consistent with what we believe and what we teach. The gospel is what we believe. It is what we teach. And it's through the gospel of Christ, his death and resurrection, that we have citizenship in heaven. So we live life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul uses that phrase a number of times in several of his letters. I want to touch on those just briefly. Uh, In the previous letter, just to the left, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Colossians 1, 9 and 10, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And as I've already mentioned, Paul himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul is exhorting us to live lives worthy of our heavenly identity and to conduct ourselves in a manner that well represents our eternal homeland. Much of this letter will describe in one way or another how we, we, the citizens of heaven, should conduct ourselves during our brief stay on earth. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Corinth, and I find this really interesting too. It speaks to our behavior and our, the demonstration of our lives before others. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2. You yourselves, speaking, Paul speaking to the, the Corinthian church, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation 
written in our hearts to be known and read by all. The notes in my study Bible said this about this verse. The transformed lives of the Corinthians were Paul's most eloquent testimonial, better than any secondhand letter. Their changed lives were like an open letter that could be seen and read by all men as a testimony to Paul's faithfulness and the truth of his message, the gospel. The way that we conduct ourselves is of vital importance. And Paul's going to go on in these next few verses to give us what I think are four ways to do this. Four kind of elements of our behavior as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But Paul clarifies that it doesn't matter whether he comes to see them or not. Again, I I believe that this is indication that he's uncertain of his fate at this point. But their behavior is not linked to him coming to them or not. Their conduct should be worthy of the gospel no matter what. And he hopes to hear that that is the case. So the first thing I want to look at, the first element of our behavior, and our third point this morning, is standing. We are to stand firm, Paul says. The Greek word here is a word called steko. It can mean to literally stand. We see evidence of that in other areas of the New Testament. But here in this instance, it's used more figuratively in a positive case of to stand firm in faith and duty. It's to be consistent. It's to, be, it's to persevere. It's to remain steadfast. To continue in a state. So it can mean to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. So that's what Paul is is getting at here for the church at Philippi. It refers to a soldier who will not budge from his post. And as I was reading this, I was reminded of the guards at Buckingham Palace. For those of you who may not know, my wife and I served as missionaries in Wales for almost 14 years. Um, And where we lived is only about two hours from London. And so we made frequent trips to the city. It's one of our favorite cities, certainly in Europe. But one of our favorite places to visit and just to walk by was Buckingham Palace. And I always found it fascinating to stand and watch the guards. They were these seemingly immovable rocks who did not flinch. But no doubt they would move swiftly to action if the need arose. They were not people to be messed with. They knew their job. Their loyalty was to the crown and there was no compromise with them. And that's the picture that Paul is painting for us. As as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, there is to be no compromise with the world. We are to be doctrinally sound. We are to stand firm. Paul repeats this later in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, when he instructs the readers again to stand firm in the Lord. So the question is, how do we stand firm? What does that look like? Well, I I like to go back, take a left, go back to chapter chapter 6 of Ephesians. I want to read this to us. Reference this last week, but this is Paul's passage on the armor of God. Let's read this together, starting in verse chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the, in, withstand in the evil day. Sorry, And having done all, here's the phrase again, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we are to stand against Satan and his demons. We are to have the belt of truth wrapped around us. That's spiritual commitment. We are to have the breastplate of righteousness, which is holiness and purity. Our feet need shoes with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That is, we know that God is at peace with us, that we are at peace with God, that God is on our side. And we stand our ground knowing that he will defend us. We take up the shield of faith. That's our belief in God. We have the helmet of salvation. That's our confidence in him. And we have in our hand the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is how we stand firm as believers. This is how we stand firm in our faith. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends are taken into exile in Babylon and they are faced with a challenge. The king commanded that they were to eat the king's foods and drink the king's wine. But the scripture tells us that they were resolved not to defile themselves in such a way. They stood firm and they were willing to face the consequences. This is what it looks like to stand firm. We see the same thing several times in the early chapters of Daniel. Daniel and his friends were firm in their convictions and their beliefs, and they chose to stand firm in what they were to counter. Sorry, they were to stand firm in ways that were counter to the culture that they were living in. So we are to stand firm. Secondly, this morning, we are to share. Sharing. Notice the words that Paul uses here. They are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. This is a unity that Paul is calling for and which he calls for many times in many of his letters. Let's look at a few of those together. The first, again, is back in Ephesians. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read a portion of Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We read that earlier. He goes on with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jump down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity 
of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Romans 12, 4 and 5, Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself says in John chapter 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus also in his high priestly prayer in John 17 says this, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, speaking of his disciples. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The theme of unity and being of the same mind continues into chapter 2. And so we're going to see that further once we get there. But just as a, a teaser to what's coming, here's the simple solution that Paul gives to disunity among believers. See, conflict is the result of competing interests. So stop looking out just for yourself. It's really that simple. Paul says we are to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We live in a culture and a society where most people have one agenda, and that's themselves and their own interests. And rarely do they think about anyone else. We are to be different. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are to be drastically different from that. We are to look to the interests of others. So we are to stand firm. We are to share. Thirdly, we are to strive. Paul hopes to hear that they are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul has called for unity, which we just looked at, and this here is unity with a purpose. The verb that Paul uses would bring to the mind of the Philippians the picture of an athletic contest, which was a popular aspect of their culture. Think of the ancient Olympics. The Greek verb athleo is the root of the English word athletic, and it means to contend for a prize or to compete in the games. The prefix sun or sin means together, and it speaks of an intimate union which in turn pictures the idea of teamwork. So this is an athletic term that means to struggle along with someone. It's the idea of a sports team struggling together against an opponent. I want to give you another example. 
uh, RC will appreciate this. I'm not a cyclist, but I love to watch the Tour de France. I've watched it for years now, every summer in July. There's a three-week bike race that goes all over France and occasionally neighboring countries. But it is an incredible display of physical strength and endurance. And what becomes obvious to people as you, as you watch this over time, you learn that riders are the strongest and the fastest when they ride in what's called the peloton. Now on the screen behind me, you'll see a picture of the peloton. This is a, a grouping of cyclists riding along the road together. The definition of a peloton is a densely packed group of riders sheltering in each other's draft. So in a mass start race, which is what the Tour de France is each day, most of the competitors usually end up in one large peloton for most of the stage. The word is a French, it's a French word from the term that means rolled up in a ball. So when the riders remain in this kind of configuration, their effectiveness and their strength is maximized. They can ride faster with less effort than someone attempting to do it on their own. We as believers function best when we are in the pack, drafting off those around us, even as they draft off of us, spiritually speaking, of course. But that's a picture of what the church should, like, should look like, working together for a common purpose. John MacArthur, um, hold that thought. Good teamwork is the ability to put aside differences or disagreements. It's the ability to put aside personal matters in order to come together against an opponent who threatens to defeat us. So John MacArthur has this to say about this. He said, now let me tell it to you simply. You will never maintain a real unity in a static situation. If a church just stands around and tries to have unity, it will never have unity. The only way to maintain unity, the only way to get it, really, the only way to keep it, is an internal oneness to share common life, to be engaged in a common struggle. He says this is basic. When everyone's focus is on the common goal and the common objective and the common victory, and there's a desperation about winning, Nobody really cares about the internal issues. We've all read through the years about athletic teams that struggle and fight and quarrel and argue. Even have fighting matches in the dugout or the locker room. Sometimes there's terrible discord until the championship game is on the line. And then they come out and they're like one well-oiled machine. Why? Because all is forgotten in a common objective gained through a common struggle. Any general on the face of the earth knows that that which motivates unity among troops is a sense of victory. Any coach knows that that which makes unity a reality on a team is when you stop being concerned about the internal discord and you focus on the objective. And the only thing that concerns you is how you're going to get there, not who gets the credit Not whether you like the guy next to you or not. You're in a common struggle together. So what is our common objective as the church? Well, Paul tells us here. We are to strive side by side for the faith in the gospel. That's our common goal. 
Here's what Paul had to say about this gospel in Romans chapter 1. He said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1, Paul is speaking to the church at Galatia who have kind of wandered away from this gospel. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and who are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have a common goal, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to contend for the faith of the gospel. And in our contending, we are not to fear. Paul says here, we are not to fear. This is the sign of their destruction and your salvation. Now, this was an interesting verse too. John Phillips paraphrases this verse. He says, don't be scared out of your determination to live out your heavenly citizenship by anything your enemies might try to do to you. Their opposition to you is their own condemnation. Your calm, collective courage in the face of danger and persecution is a sure token to your enemies of the perdition that awaits them. Another commentator that I read said this about verse 28. He said, Our response, our striving side by side, becomes a sign to them, those that are opposed to us, of our confidence in the living God, who will vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. This response is to be modeled after Christ's response before Pilate. No doubt, Christ's response probably somewhat unnerved this godless man. John 19 says, Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? So Jesus had not answered any of his questions up to this point. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus speaks up and he answers him saying, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. And you remember also Pilate's wife's reaction, Matthew 27, 19. It says, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, His wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. 
We have nothing to fear because we know who holds the victory. We sang about that earlier. We know who holds the victory and the ability to stand firm, to be in one spirit, of one mind, to strive side by side is evidence of their destruction and it is evidence of our salvation. As a reminder of what James tells us, faith without works is dead. We are not saved by our works, but our works are evidence of our faith. Paul talks about this more in his letter to the church at Thessalonica. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you, to those who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the last element that I want to talk about this morning, kind of of our behavior, is not necessarily something that we choose or do, but it's what we can and may very well go through, and that's suffering. Paul says, for it has been granted to you to suffer. When I was reading through this and studying some of the, the key words and some of the Greek um, This was really interesting and I guess something that I had never really caught before. But the word granted comes from the Greek noun, which is charis. It's grace. Suffering is a gift of grace that brings power and eternal reward. And it is to be expected. For it has been granted to you to suffer. Dwight Edwards said this, Paul is giving another reason for not shrinking back from those that would oppose and persecute us. Suffering for Christ is our birthright. God has not only graciously allowed us to believe in the name of Christ, as Paul says here, he's also graciously allowed us to suffer on behalf of Christ. It's interesting that Paul uses granted here, showing that suffering for Christ is a privilege. And he was not the only one who was to be sharing in this privilege. So were the Philippians. And so are we. When suffering for Christ is properly understood, it is most certainly a privilege, a gracious grant. Because of these sufferings, eternity becomes a richer experience. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 21. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Acts 5, verse 40 through 42. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That seems like such a foreign concept to me. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 6 and following, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. (coughs) Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Paul closes this chapter with what I find to be an encouraging reminder. We are in this together. That's what Paul's saying to the church at Philippi. We are engaged in the same conflict. The same conflict that you saw that I had when I was in Philippi. The same conflict that you see that I have now here in Rome. And it's the same for us today. We live in a culture that pushes back against the truths of the gospel every day, everywhere. And like Paul is challenging the Philippians, we must stand firm like soldiers who won't budge from their post. We must be united in one spirit with one mind. We must strive side by side as athletes on the same team. And we must be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. All for the sake of the faith of the gospel. We must be united, church. We will have differences. We will have disagreements. But we must be united. I think one of the ways that I 
I experience this and I see this in our church life is when we serve together. When 73 of us were in Kentucky this summer, you could see the unity together as we're serving, as we were going out in small teams, but also as we were gathered in a large group at times. You see and you feel the unity that God has called us to and that Paul is reminding us of. It is absolutely vital. And like I mentioned earlier, that unity comes not in being static, but being, in, being united in what we're doing and how we go about it. And that's the, that's the one thing that I love about LifePoint. We have so many people in this body who are willing to go. and We go together to the ends of the earth to take the gospel to people who have never heard. We go to neighboring cities and we serve. We go to neighboring states and we serve. Because I think we as a church have recognized that we need to do this together. And the beauty of it is, yes, we're all individuals and we're going to leave here in a little bit and we're going to go home. We're going to go our separate ways. And tomorrow morning you may go to work. If you're a student, you may go to school. Whatever the case might be, we go those places, but we know that we have people who have our backs. That we're not alone. We have a church body of committed believers who are praying for one another and supporting one another, encouraging one another with texts and emails. And so we must continue to be united because it's not going to get any easier. A couple of kind of applications, things to take away from today. When our conduct matches our creed, we are walking worthy of the creed of the gospel. So the question for us this morning is, how how are we doing? How are you doing? Does your walk match your talk? Or are you so timid that they have no idea that you're even a believer in Christ Jesus? Do your neighbors know that you're a follower of Christ? Do the people that you work with or go to school with, do they know that you're a follower of Christ? Does your walk match your talk? Something else to think about, and I want to, I, I want to encourage you to, to do this today if you haven't done it. Um, week, two weeks ago, I think now, I put something on our internal Facebook page about a resource from Truth for Life, which is um, the ministry of Alistair Begg. He pastors a church, I think, Ohio, I think. Uh, he's, he's written a book called Brave by Faith. And it's kind of a commentary on the book of Daniel. So it's really fitting um, for what we're reading through right now in the W4. Uh, but I finished listening to it. It's an, the, he's, he's giving it free as an audio book right now, I think through September the 8th. You can find it on his website. I'll try to uh, post another link. Um, or if you want that link, let me know and I'll email it to you. Um, 
But it's, it's well worth your time listening to, particularly, and I hope that you are, walking through the W4 with us. Um, but it's just a good resource to listen to as you're reading through those chapters. But one of the things that he challenges us as the listeners and readers of the book is that we need to know our lines. And he talks about how Daniel and his friends knew those lines that they were not going to cross. When they were challenged, as I mentioned earlier, by, um, by the chief of the eunuchs who told them, this is what you're going to eat and this is what you're going to drink, they had already determined that, no, we're not doing that. And so they presented their case before the chief of the eunuchs. But I know, I'm convinced, that whether the chief of the eunuchs had said yes to them or said no, they were going to say no. And they would have suffered the consequences for that. They knew their line. When you get to Daniel chapter 3 and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to, to bow down before this giant statue that he's built. They did not decide in that moment that they were gonna, not going to bow down. That decision was not made right there on that field. That decision was made a long time before, that they were not going to bow the knee to anyone but the Lord their God. We have to make those decisions. We have to know our lines before we get to those points where the pressure starts to hit us. And I think that that's what Paul is Challenging the Philippians too, and what he's challenging us to do. Stand firm. Know your line. Stand firm and don't cross it. But again, we're not called to do this alone. I'm grateful that I have brothers and sisters in this room who will stand with me. Those three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're standing on that plane together. I'm pretty sure that they would, if, if they were alone, they would have stood. But how much stronger were they because the three of them were standing together? We're not bowing the knee. And you know what? Paul, what, what Paul says to the Philippians, don't be afraid. Those three guys standing there, their responses to Nebuchadnezzar, they showed no fear. Why? Because they were confident in their God. They knew that God was going to rescue them. One way or the other, they were confident that God could rescue them from that fire. But they said, even if he doesn't, we're not bowing the knee because we have confidence in our God. We can have that confidence. And I hope today that you have that confidence. And I hope that we can walk out into this world and we can start our week tomorrow living in the confidence of our great God. That picture of those three guys standing on that field before a giant statue with the resolve to not bow the knee, knowing their fate if they didn't. That's a picture of what the church should look like today. We must stand firm 
And we must do so together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Would you pray with me?